If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com slash choice for the rules and the leaderboard. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Today I'd like to introduce you to Judy Peel. Judy's a Grand Prix rider, coach, judge and trainer and rode a first Grand Prix at the age of 31. Judy, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And it's a beautiful sunny day in Tassie. How is it with you? <laughs> Wonderful. We've had some great rain and now the sun's out, so very good. <laughs> the grass is green, horses oh, are happy because there's lots of green shoots coming through. Yep. Yeah, you needed the rain too, didn't we? Well, we did. We did. Probably not so much on the coast, but certainly in some parts of Queensland, yes, for sure. Yeah. Okay, Judy, can we start off by asking about your favourite quote? Well, favourite. I don't know that favourite's quite the right word, but a quote that I like to think I live by is, be true to yourself. And one other thing that I think is important in my life in the way of quotes is to never say never. And as a coach, as a judge, as a person, as a rider, I don't ever say never because people invariably prove you wrong including yourself, you can hold yourself back by saying, I can never do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that, that itself is quite inspirational. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about a time that you might have thought never and you've just thought, no, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to just keep moving forward or you've seen someone else do it. Well, I think the first really memorable time that was said to me was with my first Grand Prix horse, dear old Hickory. And he was just a nothing bred horse here and we from Tasmania and we laughed about him being a Tasmanian warm blood. And a very well-known judge actually came to me and said, you really must sell that horse. I will buy him from you because he will never reach any significant level. And I remember going back to the stable. I was not a person to cry in public. I went back to the stable. I sobbed my heart out and I thought, right, well, I'm going to show you. Don't ever say never to me. And that's, I think, a philosophy in life I took on. Mm, it's a very good one. Very good one. Because that horse then went on to, to do Grand Prix. And I mean, quite, when I say quite unexpectedly, he wasn't bred for it. He was thoroughbred cross with goodness knows what but yes it was a very important time for me when that person said that to me. What about the other one be true to yourself how has that helped you? I think in life that we gather information through life and we particularly when we with respect to training horses and we gather our own facts together and we have our own way of training and I think it's important that 
if that works for you, you are true to that, not just with respect to necessarily training horses, but in life too, that you don't become subject to peer group pressure or parental pressure, friends pressure. In that instance, for me, it was a judge's pressure. So they're very closely linked, I think, those two, those two sayings. Okay, good, good. All right, Chid, if we're going to move on, how did you start with horses? What are your first memories? I started at three months old in a basket saddle on a pony, apparently. <laughs> My first memories of riding were when we actually moved to Tasmania from England and I had a little pony called Betsy Sue and I used to be led along the beach on Betsy Sue and then we went to Canada and I took up a different discipline of riding plus the English. I rode Western. But yes, my first memories were of Betsy Sue. But I did visit the pony that I had in England when he was about 30. So I was actually able to go back and see him because I hadn't seen pictures of him, but I never actually really remembered him. Mm-hmm. But I did see him at 30. Good. Good. Dear boy, bless him. What was his name? Do you remember? Oh, yes, he was called Cocky. Okay, Cocky. I can remember yeah. the name of yeah. all my yeah. horses. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. And he was a little, well, in that day and age, he was described as a skewbald. Okay. Yes, he was He was white with ginger blobs on him and a little basket saddle, and then me strapped into the little saddle. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Now, a career with horses. You you went on to study and have another career first and then started a career with horses. But you had horses all the way through? Tell me about that. Yes, I've had horses all the way through my life. Well, my mother was a very keen horsewoman. My father was a vet. And we'd just always been in a position where we could have horses, even when we were in Canada and when we returned to Tasmania, it was the same thing. We'd always had horses. Just there was really no escape for me. I wasn't going to get away from them. And I became a radiographer, and this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, and making a living from horses was not really a great option at the time. You were probably going to be a stable hand, and I wanted a qualification, so I did radiography, and then while I was studying radiography, I gained my coaching qualifications, first of all, my level two general, and then my level three dressage specialist while I was training, and we lived in Tasmania, and there's not a great, well, then in particular, there wasn't a great number of people wanting lessons, and there's not the great population, so We moved to Victoria where I coached full-time for a living, really, again, just to show myself that I could do it once again, the never say never strikes. And that I did. And now we've just moved back to Tasmania. We've been here three months now. So we've just moved back to Tasmania and I want to build a school here and do a little bit of teaching. But my goal in life now is to train another Grand Prix horse. Good. So I have two now that I'm... Yeah, no, that's, that's good. No, no, I was... What I was going to ask, because people want to work with horses, but they've got to be the right person. If you were going to have someone to work for you or you're going to recommend someone, if someone was looking for a person to employ, what type of core skills would you recommend that they had or what, you know, what would you 
be looking for in a person? What would I be looking for? Well, I mean, in this day and age, Glennis, there are so many more facets of the horse industry. Yes. You don't necessarily have to be that involved with horses to do it. But for me, if you are going to be a horse person and to actually work with horses, I think one of the most important things is that you're prepared to work hard, that you are patient, extremely patient, and open to learning from your mentors, coaches, whatever they happen to be that's influencing you in your career. Yep, that's good. Yes, Mm. I think that's Mm. really, those are the three things I would look for. Okay. Yeah, it's good because it gives people an idea who are looking to have a job, what they should be working on with themselves. Now, for someone who starts off on a horse, who's part thoroughbred, part don't know what, progresses on, gets told the horse would be no good. Sounds like hickory. (laughs) Then goes on to ride Grand Prix. Grand Prix coach, judge, trainer. has How many Grand Prix horses have you had? Well, I've trained from really point of breaking in three horses now that have competed in Grand Prix. And that's no mean feat, you know? It, it, no, I, I, I don't suppose it is. <laughs> How long does it take? I don't suppose it is. I don't suppose it is, is a mean feat, but to me it's, I mean, I don't look on myself as being particularly good, but just someone who was patient and waited and trained and waited for the horse to develop and got there. You've done something that a lot of people would aspire to, even just to train one horse to Grand Prix. You've done it with a few. You've taken them from breaking in. How long does it take you from breaking in to train? How long has it taken you, say, to train Hickory, to train your others? Oh, dear. Well, they've all taken different lengths of time, and that's something that we have to be aware of and we have to respect, that some horses learn certain things a lot quicker Some horses take longer, and I think the important thing with the Grand Prix horse is that they've got the physical strength to do it as well as the mental capabilities. And sometimes horses do develop at different rates physically, just like people do. So, oh, I don't know, on average, gosh, I start with them three, four, and then maybe by the time they're 10, 11, 12, they might be starting to look towards achieving all the movements of Grand Prix. But that's the other thing too, achieving the movements of Grand Prix and then actually putting together a Grand Prix test and doing it are two different things. For example, I've got a horse now who's 10 and he's showing the beginnings of most of the Grand Prix movements, but I don't know when he'll be ready to put together a Grand Prix test because it comes thick and fast when you're in the arena and You might be able to do four or five one-time changes, but then when you actually have to do 15 one-time changes after you've done some other movement in the Grand Prix test, that's more of a test still for you. So even though your horse might be Grand Prix trained, doesn't necessarily mean it can Mm. do a Grand Prix test if you understand where I'm coming from. Mm. Mm. So it sounds like the horse is going to tell you when he's ready. Absolutely. Okay. Without hesitation, I say absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Before you take a horse, before you even nominate, before you even consider a Grand Prix test, tell me what the horse is telling you. What are you looking for? What signals, what result are you getting from your horse before you start to think, okay, now I'll take him out and compete him at that level? Well, that you can 
do those movements accurately, that the horse is listening to you and that's where the accuracy comes from in conjunction with his strength and his balance. And that's the other thing to consider is the horse's balance and that I can put together and ride a reasonable test at home before I go out because one always has to remember that what you do at home is probably not going to be what you do when you're out. So, you, I mean, they always say you should get 120% at home to get 100% out, but I think that's important, that the horse is used to some atmosphere that you've put in, the preparation in taking the horse into the situation of competing. I think most people in Australia compete up the grade, so usually their horse is has been in situations of competition and situations of atmosphere. I think atmosphere is very good for horses at Grand Prix level because they need that pizzazz. And this is where it can be difficult if you've done a lot of competing prior to reaching the Grand Prix level is that the horse goes, oh, no, not again, and immediately starts to get a little bit flatter. Once okay. you go in the arena, and I think all competition riders have experienced that. All right. We're going to go back to the question that I was going to ask you about keys to excelling in a career with horses. As a judge, as a trainer, as a rider, what makes people – I mean, there's not many people that have trained more than one Grand Prix, any Grand Prix horses. If you think about the amount of people that are in Australia or in the world – what makes it, what have you got that someone else hasn't got that makes it that you just want to keep training and riding Grand Prix, up to Grand Prix? Oh, goodness, what a question. You should ask other people that. <laughs> <laughs> what have I got that other people haven't got? Well, certainly, first of all, not lots of money mm-hmm. because I can't afford to go out and buy a made horse. So I don't, that's one thing I don't have. But I think what I do have is perhaps patience, persistence, tenacity probably to a fault on occasion, so I'm told by my husband, but certainly determination and when I say an open-mindedness, open to learning, not just from other people but from your horse as well and being able to read and listen to your horse. And I think to a bit of a perfectionist, I'm, I'm like that in about a lot of things in life. My hobbies include forms of perfectionism and so, yes, I think that probably goes with the territory too. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? I think so. I think so. I think um, you can see that in a lot of top people. I think, you know, just that keep going, patience, persistence, yep, and they've got very clear goal. I mean, you've got a very clear goal now of saying, right, this is my next Grand Prix that's horse. It. Yeah, and and that's very clear. You're not someone who just goes out for a bit of a ride but you haven't you know got a clear goal what I'd like to know then is someone who's influenced you to learn more about horses and helped you to learn more about horses well initially probably coaches like Tina Walmansdorf Mm -hmm. and Edgar Litvak who used to come to Tasmania yep and then I think later on Wolfgang Holtzel he was the national coach and he certainly I don't know, that inspired me to go on and do more, but he certainly had faith in me. And even though I was from Tasmania, he was still prepared to put in and he believed in me. 
Yes, I think he and also Uwe Spenlin is another person that's really opened me up to learning and wanting to do more, which sometimes I think, God, at my age, should I be doing that? And I think, well, yes, physically and mentally, I'm still able to do it. And so I want to go on learning and I want to go on riding. And that's why I want to train another Grand Prix horse. Good. (laughs) Good. So your first Grand Prix horse was Hickory. What about other horses that have influenced you, who have influenced you? Um, Well, of course, Beerabee Sprout and Sunbury Lodge play right with the other two horses that I've trained Grand Prix. But other horses that have influenced me have not necessarily got that far, but they've been totally different personalities. I think all my horses have had longevity because that's something that's very important is that we must remember that theoretically dressage is the gymnastic training of the horse and promotes longevity and all my horses have lived to a good ripe old age and haven't broken. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that is very important to consider and people need to think about is that am I training this horse for a longer life or am I training this horse in a way that it's going to break down either mentally or physically? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about training. What do you think is a problem that you see in training, training of the horse, training of the rider? I think people trying to get there too quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, in this day and age of instant satisfaction and instant gratification, this doesn't bode well for the horse in many instances. And we need to take the time and it does take a number of years. I think one of the things that in training, two things. First of all, the rider's position and secondly, the horse's straightness. Okay. Rider position is essential, got to have the balance so that you help the horse, you don't hinder it. Also, balance can give you very timely aids because that's important and straightness is the other thing that I think is very important but also too very difficult. Okay, and that straight, straightness in the rider, straightness in the horse? Absolutely, because if you've only got to think about you having a sack of onions on your shoulders and if it's hanging off one side, how, it, how difficult it is to go straight and how we have to compromise our body to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that is a bit of a misconception is straightness in the bend because... People bend their horses, they bend their neck, but they don't bend their body. And I liken it to having the horse on train tracks. Two reins, your two legs, and the horse just goes on that line both sides of its body because when you think about it, a train track goes on curved lines as well as on straight lines. And you want to be very aware that there's no bit of you or the horse falling off the train track. And I use that imagery, shall I say, when I'm when I'm teaching people and talking about bend and straightness. I like that actually. I, I'm imagining now a train track and a horse going through the train track because they can't swing quarters in, quarters out, shoulders in. You know, like they've got to be going That's through it. the train track. And and I'm thinking of through the train a, track, a straight train track and a circular train track, and a horse just following. Yeah, that's that's actually and a good explanation. I'm always thinking like the train tracks are a bit wider than higher than that, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, 
And even in lateral movement, mm-hmm. lateral movements, you can still think of the train track in a shoulder in, in a travers. In other words, it's connecting both sides of the horse's body and your body and going on that line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though the position of the shoulders in the shoulder in us are different to the hind quarters, but that's still that feeling of connection to both sides of the horse and being able to keep them balanced on those two lines, the two lines of their hind leg, front leg, and your legs and the reins. Yep, that's that's a good explanation. Good. All right, now going to competitions, and we know that, you know, training, you train in preparation for competitions, wait for the horse to tell you when they're ready to go to that level. Um, but competition mistakes, sometimes, do you see riders throwing marks away that you just, you know, you just think, oh, why did you throw that mark away? Now, instead of doing that, I had to do that. And it might be something that they've done just in the moment of riding the test, just lack of focus, lack of concentration or lack of training on how to ride a test. Is there any anything you could say about that? To help people with that? Mm. I think, of course, it's corners, isn't it? <laughs> and there are four of them in a rectangle. And out of every corner, whatever level of test you're riding, there is a movement. The corner is essential and we see so many people, particularly at the lower levels, just ride a half circle for the short side instead of two corners and a straight line. I think the other thing that is very important is to ride accurately. For example, you know, I don't know how many times I've judged a long diagonal, say HXF, MXK, and it looks like a sine wave. Mm -hmm. You know, they can, just by being accurate, turning the horse off that line so that you're lined up with the quarter marker, you go through X and you ride to the next corner marker. That looks so much neater and tidier than a horse that's sort of wobbling on that line. And transitions are the other thing that need to be good and are easily marks are lost. Mm-hmm. Make them accurate, make them balanced, And another thing that I think is important is the walk. People don't train the walk, but we need to. And what riders want to remember is that in a test, every walk movement has a coefficient. Mm. Mm. There's not much walk in a test, but it has a coefficient. So it's important that we take care of the walk and we train it. Okay. So that covers it, doesn't it? Corners, accuracy, transitions don't forget the walk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, that's In good. a nutshell. <laughs> All right, Judy, what's a book that you could recommend for people to read, just to complement what you say, to, to complement their writing? Um, to complement their writing, well, if they're really wanting to improve their position and understand the, the biomechanics of, of their position, I think um, Mary Wanless's books are very good. Mm-hmm. You really need to concentrate when you're reading them, but they're books that you can go back to and read two or three times because they are interesting, although in-depth, they're also interesting reading. And I think our biomechanics are very important, particularly in conjunction with the horse. There are a lot of books now, fortunately, that do reflect the growing trend on riders' position, whereas In the past, it's tended to be just books on the horse and exercises that you can do for the horse, Mm -hmm. whereas now we're getting many more books that are becoming more detailed 
in rider position and biomechanics. Good. All right. Now, I know that you, you're looking forward to training your current horse, horses. So you've got two horses in work? Two horses, yep. yep. Training them to Grand Prix. What else are you looking forward to? Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I say tomorrow, look, Glennis, if I'm upright, breathing, I can still ride my horses. I look forward to the next day. And I think we have to be like that, you know, particularly when we get a little bit older. We've lived our life with horses. We've come out of it relatively unscathed because that's the other thing we have to be very conscious of is that they're very big animals and, you know, it is a high-risk sport. So to come out unscathed is is, is good. So that's why <laughs> I just, yeah, I just look forward to tomorrow. Okay, that's a great attitude, great attitude. All right, now I'd like you to sum up your philosophy into a lesson today for our listeners. Sum up my philosophy yes, on yes. training horses. Mm-hmm. Basically, to follow the training scale, yep. the German National Training Scale, that's important to follow that, that you conduct yourself in a patient manner. When you say my philosophy on training, I come out each day, shall we just talk through what I would do with myself and what I would do with a client that oh, I'm teaching? Absolutely. Is that you... If you start with thinking about the rhythm, knowing the correct footfalls of each of the paces, and from there you develop the suppleness. Now, the suppleness is, comes because the horse is prepared to give through its back and its neck, and it applies vertically and horizontally. You know that the horse will give laterally and that the horse will let its back swing up and down. Then we start to talk about the contact and then we start to talk about the impulsion from that and then we talk about the straightness and then we talk about the collection. Not that I would ever take it up with the Germans, but I do think the straightness could probably be further down the scale, but far be it from me to, to go on with that point because I think that relates to everything. And so from that, I developed that. And if the horse is ready, then I start to do more collection. But also during your training sessions, I think it's important that you let the horse stretch the contact out. You know, sometimes too, coaches want the horse stretching at the beginning. But the situation on that day may be that you can't do that without having... You know, you've got to have some control to start with. So you need the reins at a length where you feel you have control. You get the horse listening to you. Then you can start to make him more adjustable. In other words, you can make him longer in the frame or you can start to shorten the frame and get him to start working uphill. But each day is different. And we tend to forget that with the horse. I mean, some days we get out of bed and we feel like shit, to put it bluntly. <laughs> Another day we'll get out of bed and we feel great. The same applies to the horse. And so, therefore, each day can't be the same, but you need to have some sort of structure that you can work through to produce what you want at the end of the ride. And Stephen Peters once said, you know, if you can't get something within 30 minutes, you're probably not going to get it that day. And that tends to be a bit the way I think too, that, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't go on grinding away forever and ever on something and expect it to get better. My other philosophy in a lesson is that, or in a ride, is if I'm 
training a particular movement and it's only the very beginning of that particular movement that I'm doing and it gradually gets better after, say, three repetitions, then I won't go on doing it. Mm-hmm. If it's got better that day, leave it. Then maybe the next day or the day after you go back and don't expect that it will have the quality that you finished with the last time, the first time you do it the next time. Yes. Just remember that you've got to build up and then you maybe just get one more step that's even better. So then good horse and leave it. Mm -hmm. I think that's my philosophy. In other words, giving them the time and knowing when to stop. Mm -hmm. That that can be very difficult is knowing when to stop. And I think there's the underpinning that you've said right through is about listening to the horse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Judy, how can people contact you? They can contact me through my details, which are on the EA website. Yes. I'm happy for people to call me or to email me. And also, I think you'll have my details, won't you, on the... I do have your details and I will put them on the Horse Chats website, which is horsechats.com slash Judy Peel. Okay. That would be great. Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, and I'm more than happy for people to get in touch with me either to discuss something or to maybe organise a clinic or some lessons, whatever. Okay. And also, too, I am a coach educator, so I can help in that way as well. And if the German Federation want to contact you to talk about bringing straightness <laughs> further up the training scale? I'll run a mile. <laughs> <laughs> You won't see me for dust. No, I wouldn't take that on, but I do think straightness is so important. <laughs> okay, thanks very thanks much, for that, Judy. You can, you can refer me to the Germans, to the Germans if you like. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, Judy. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.